This is Joseph Clare, and you're listening to George Fox Talks Theology. Welcome, everybody. George Fox Talks Theology. So happy to be here. Your host, Joseph Clare. As you know, the premise of this show is that our lives are irreducibly theological. So even in a secular age like our own, whether implicit or explicit, there's a theology of everything. And today, the topic, broad, simple, simple, broad topic, science, <laughs> with my special guest, uh, Professor Todd Curtis from George Fox University, Associate Professor of Physics. It is so great to have you here today, Todd. Yeah, thanks, Joseph. I'm excited to be here and share a little bit about how awesome God is and how great his world is through science. Awesome. Well, that's what I want to know. And it, it's like a, it's a mystery to me as a philosopher and theologian. I've, I've kind of been shy of science. Um, it gets overwhelming. Like once you get past like classifying birds or whatever in fourth <laughs> grade, I just kind of tuned out a little bit. So I'm ready to tune back in. I want you to be my teacher because I've heard you're such a great teacher. And I know we'll see that on display today. So other than all your illustrious degrees and accolades, everything that's on your curriculum, Vita, I want to know one thing about you that's not on your your CV or your resume, Todd? All right. Um, it's a tough, tough call, but I would tell you, I guess I love board games. Um, board games. Yeah. I have a reputation among my friends of being quite good at them. Um, back in grad school, I still remember actually we played Settlers of Catan as kind of like the entry level into like proper board games. Um, and so we played that a lot. And like, there was like this ongoing, like game after game embargo where none of my friends would trade with me at all, no matter what, which is an important part of the game. I still won sometimes. But anyway, <laughs> it made it a lot less fun, actually. So good but, that everyone wants you to lose and teams yeah, up against yeah. you. Wow. I hope that's not a theme in your life but yeah. we'll find out no, it's later. only board games that's about it so. I, but i feel like there's only two kinds of people in the world uh so maybe those who are destined for heaven and hell but more readily i feel like there's either those who love board games or those who hate board games yeah and i, I just i just want I you to know sad for those who hate board games yeah i just want you to know that's me oh wow well I will try to enlighten you in addition to science about the glories of board games someday. I, maybe we should shift to a theology of board games right now and scrap whatever else we were going to talk about. Because I will say my wife, who also doesn't like board games, but she has this. So only does she hate board games, but she makes herself feel guilty in raising kids that we're not raising them to love board games. Like that's always this like hanging guilt in our family air. Like, shouldn't we be playing board games on vacation? I'm like, why would we play board games? Because they're awesome. Because um, <laughs> exactly. It's just such good family bonding, you know, <laughs> a little bit of, yeah. actually, I don't know. Like in my family, I'm not sure board games was always the healthiest competition. Um, <laughs> there's throwing things and yelling at times. Um, but yeah. I don't know. I just, I want in your club. I know all you engineering science profs over there playing board games on oh, the weekend. Yeah. I'm not. But so tell me um, just a bit more before we dive into the, the subject at hand, the theology of science, like how long you been at George Fox? And what's like been your favorite course that you've taught here? Yeah, so I'm I'm in my eighth year at Fox, and whew, favorite course is is tough. I mean, I would just say physics, but pretty much everything I teach is physics, and each course just 
yeah, has its own its own pieces that that I enjoy. I mean, maybe it's because I'm I'm teaching it right now. I I'm really getting excited about the new faith and science course. I'm only partway through it, so I haven't done the whole thing. So I feel like I can't choose that. But I I love teaching. I teach uh, physics for like kind of pre-med students and pre-physical therapy students. And so they're not engineers. They're not physicists. They're mostly biology majors or biochemistry or exercise science. And I actually really love teaching that class because for many of them, it's it's their first entry into thinking in a different way. It's like this problem solving that's kind of unique to physics, at least at like the undergraduate level. As you move up, you get to that level of thinking and, and challenge in all sciences, but especially in physics, it just hits you right away. And I love coaching students through that challenge and helping them not only learn how the world works, learn how to problem solve, but developing character that can only come through the kind of challenge and failure that physics sometimes uh, forces us to deal yeah. with. I've heard about that from some of your students who come crying to me after their exams, but I wonder. We so, call them celebrations of knowledge in my class, actually. <laughs> They're not exams, but thanks. I love how, yeah, one of the virtues associated with your course, as we were talking about kind of whatever virtues are cultivated through learning in a liberal arts college was humility was on the table there yeah. for a while, which uh, makes sense. But I, I guess, okay, so we have a new core curriculum, George Fox called the cornerstone. It's all yep. the kind of usual suspect liberal arts courses, science, psychology, uh, math, ethics, things like that. We're trying to do that at a, in a way at George Fox that like highlights how being a Christian and thinking Christianly about that subject matter, science, math, psychology is done differently here. It gives us a different perspective on the world. It's not a cheat. It's not superficial. It's not like um, an end run around the hard questions. It's like a deeper dive into those big questions and how a Christian worldview is central to it. Now, a lot of those courses, I'm like, oh yeah, faith and psychology. Yeah. 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 Soul talking about the mind. That makes sense. Faith and mm, ethics. Yeah. How to do the right thing, how to avoid bad, how to be good. That all makes sense. But science and faith, which is the name of this one liberal arts core curriculum class in the cornerstone, that's the one that people hear the and there, and they often think science, not and faith, science or faith. I mean, that, that still is like part of the popular imagination once you get outside the, the blue and gold bubble of George Fox is like science or faith. But you're saying science and faith. So there's lots of ways I could go with this, but I just want to hear you reflect on that relationship. What is science? What is faith? Why is it an and rather than an or? I don't know. Yeah, no, it's it's a good question. And it's I've been surprised, again, just in this first term, like how many of my students expressed the same thing? Like they were very intrigued just by the name of the course, like science and faith. They thought they weren't really a thing that went together, as do many people in our culture. But I mean, to me, what what is theology you know and you could answer this better than me but it's it's a it's a study of of who god is how he does things and how he operates right and i believe and as many christians too like he is the author and creator of all of nature as well mm. and so if we're studying nature if we're studying the physical world we're studying God as a creator, just like in an art class, you might study an artist to better understand their painting. We are stu or study a painting to better understand an artist. We're studying God's creation to better understand who he is. And, and the more I understand about who God is and, and how he operates, the more I see his fingerprints throughout the laws of nature as well. And so a main part of the goal of the course is to help the students see that, that studying nature, the book of nature is a book like the book of scripture for us to learn and understand aspects of who God is, not necessarily on the same level or in the same way, but it's definitely a way to understand who God is 
in addition to the course will also address some of the big challenging questions that arise but sure and i want to get to some of those challenging questions in a minute because they're like very present in fact they're they kind of keep a lot of people i think from faith and from right. the church sometimes but let's just stay with the and the theme the positive yeah. um, for a few minutes so there's all sorts of allusions in scripture to the fact that nature itself points to God and the artist creation, uh, sort of like painting points to artist creation points to creator sort of thing. So you got like the heavens declaring the glory of God yeah. in the Psalms. You've got Romans one, Paul's sense of the invisible creators known through the creation. Um, what are the like most amazing signposts in nature and creation that you feel like are like, just like, boom, pointing back to, to the creator, to the artist. I think it'd be easier for you to ask me what aren't, you know? <laughs> um, I mean, there's so many, I, I love as a physicist, I love light, hmm. the physics of how light works, the complexities of it being a wave and a particle and the way that Jesus is a man and God fully at the same time. I mean, there's so many aspects of light, both we see it, used throughout scripture to describe who God is, but the physics of how it works is just absolutely fascinating as well. The importance of it, the information it gives us, like everything we know in astronomy practically, not everything exactly, but nearly, comes from light, different mm. types of electromagnetic waves that we observe from on Earth, and that's created the entire field of astronomy. And so light is fascinating. Um, I'm not a biologist, but I love like the biology, like the simple fact that we have a garden and my wife plants these seeds in the spring and by the autumn, we're able to harvest like loads of pumpkins and spaghetti squashes and cucumbers and all this stuff. It started as a single seed, all the information needed to produce the plant that was then able to produce the fruit that we could then eat, all was packaged in that tiny thing. The way information works mm. at the biological level is absolutely fascinating and so mm. complex. DNA is amazing. And the fact that it's been around since very early in creation is just incredible. I mean, there's just so many pieces of his, his creation. I, I love the animal, the diversity of animal life. You know, a lot of times people associate that with evolution, all these different things. But like, to me, it just shows God's creativity. Like how wild is it that like one of the most successful creatures in the ocean is this weird brainless jellyfish thing with no backbone or anything. Like I love weird animals. The octopus is one of my favorites. If you've ever seen a video of an octopus changing texture and color at the same time to blend in with its surrounding, it's just absolutely fascinating. So mm -hmm. Anyway, I could go on for a while just about the cool things. No, it's, there's a sense in which all these these things that are complex and beautiful, these things that are complex and beautiful and worthwhile to pay attention to point to suggest a designer, a cause. You know, I mean, for right. thousands of years, not just in the Christian tradition in the West, but in lots of different philosophies around the world, there's a sense of like, wow. Everything seems so profoundly complex, but orderly and organized that yeah. points to not only there being like a first origin and cause of things, but an ongoing providential sort of design and, you know, uh, or there's a design, but then there's an ongoing providential care. Now, fast forward, I mean, pff, what's the deal like? at least since the enlightenment to be modern, you know, since 1600s, uh, we live in this period post-scientific revolution. So you have right. this period that's called like the dark ages when you have the church and Christianity, at the center of culture, and then you get to the enlightenment when we get illuminated. And part of that illumination was a rebirth of, 
you know, rationality of a certain sort, but also the scientific method. So we got data, we got hypotheses, we have this approach. There's been like a pretty strong consensus of what I think are like super smart scientific people. Um, and it kind of like sharpens with Darwin that says all that stuff um, could have totally come about without a creator and without an ongoing kind of providential care and design. And you just don't even need to factor that into an account. I mean, right. as a non-scientist, I'm like, I'm enchanted by what you said about whatever you said about the pumpkins. Like you've got <laughs> me there. Like, yes, there's a, there's a God and I knew it, you know, and the yeah. pumpkins pointed to it and that's all I needed to reinforce my belief. But there's like lots of smart scientists at like big places like Harvard are like, yeah, no, all this stuff, just enough time, chance. It just it just kind of happens. I mean, how how do you wrestle with that as a scientist? Right. That's like incompatible with what you just said. Yeah. Well, is it? You is know, it? Yeah. Is, is a good question. Um, I think. Yeah, there's a there's a lot to unpack there. I think one thing just a caveat, I guess you mentioned consensus. I you maybe use that word loosely. I, I don't know how you define a consensus exactly. I mean, maybe statistically educated scientists might be slightly majority would believe that there's not a creator, but I wouldn't say it's a, a strong consensus by yeah. any stretch. But anyway, side note, um, there's many, many Christians who are scientists who believe that there is a creator behind it. But I think one of the challenges is, is what is science, right? Science is about making observations, creating models to describe those observations and then testing those models really to describe how the world around us works. Science is all about trying to understand how the world around us works and creating models to describe that. And so at the time of like the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution and so on, that became a thing more and more. Like, let's apply this to more and more things. Let's apply it to what's the deal with lightning? Is it just God, you know, smiting us? Or is there like a scientific explanation? Let's apply it to sunsets and rainbows to try to understand physically how those happen, you know? And mm -hmm. so there's this idea of using science to describe the natural mechanisms by which the things around us that we observe are occurring. Mm -hmm. And that's great, you know? But I think what happens is then as a result, people will then cling to that and be like, okay, if I can explain it with science, that somehow removes God from it. And part of that, I think, is, again, the insecurity of some Christians with the idea of science. They feel like if I can explain how a rainbow works, then it like loses its magic somehow. And then it's invading my faith in God who created that rainbow for me as a symbol of never flooding the earth again or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that tension comes to rise, if, if I'm making sense, you know, that people either think this is really just a miracle of God, that he made it happen, or there's a natural explanation. And those are the two options. And so that's where the divide happens. If you're a scientist, you want to explain it, right? Because that's what science does. And so I think many of these scientists went that way and many Christians and theologians and so on cling, tried to cling to like a very narrow understanding of like mm. all of this stuff is just a miracle of God and mm. they missed the opportunity in many ways and not everyone did but many people missed the opportunity that like hey what we're doing is just better understanding how God does stuff how mm -hmm. does he make a rainbow happen yes it is from him but as an amazing engineer, as amazing creator, he didn't just do it just by the snap of his fingers. He actually <coughs> created a whole mechanism by which it can be done and better understood so mm. we can better appreciate light and the way it can refract within a water droplet in the air so that we get a beautiful rainbow. I mean, it's still an absolutely miraculous thing that's occurring. We can just explain how God made it happen. And so like to me, 
I think of science as just discovering the ways in which God made the world to work, made things to happen. And so to me, the more I can understand it, the more respect I have for God. If I try to be an engineer and try to make something, like it's super hard, like trying to build, <laughs> I tried to build a knee brace for my dog when he blew out his knee. And like, it was just not good. I'm a physicist. I do engineering and stuff. And like, this thing was like, Gus hated it because it didn't do everything it needed to. And so like, I have so much respect for anyone that can create these complex things. And science is immensely complex. Complex. Mm. I mean, just physics, it would take, you know, 10 super educated people to think you have the majority of physics knowledge in one room, mm. you know, and like, that's just one area of science when there's biology and chemistry and astronomy and biochemistry and all these different areas. Like, it's so complex. And the fact that our creator God made all of that. Oh man, he's an amazing, amazing creator. So I don't know how well I answered your no, question. No, I mean, you answered it in many different ways. I think like, Part of what makes the Christian perspective on science so powerful is that you do have an account of why things are as beautiful and designed and orderly as they are, but you also have a sense of like the purposefulness of life, right? right. So it's like this, this pumpkin plant when it's doing well is like kicking out all these big juicy orange, you know, <laughs> things this time of year, whatever. But um, everything kind of has a purpose within this grand cosmos of God's design. What do you think the designed purpose of Gus is, would you say? Oh, that's a great question. But I think it's uh, to help my wife and I experience joy. <laughs> I mean, I like, I have never, well, anyway, I don't know. It's amazing just the experience. Every time I come home, how excited he is like no matter what my day has been like no matter how tired i am like i have someone that's excited to see me and my wife's usually excited too but like the dog is always you know excited every morning when i wake up even when amy's still asleep like he's there and excited to kind of seize the day and so there's just like i don't know like this almost childlike joy that i can experience and see in him um and like he helps me get out and experience nature more because he needs to go for walks and different things so I don't know. There's a lot of joy there. There's a lot. Well, I love that sense of like philosophers call it like teleology, like the sense of what the purpose, uh, the purpose for which things are. And when you see a white oak tree, you know, and it's full, like orbed 150 year old grandeur kicking out acorns this time of the year, it's like that is white oakness, you know, yeah. sort of in human beings. You know, I think that's an interesting question. There's physical flourishing and then there's soul flourishing. But I've always thought dogs, you know, there's this. You certainly know what like a healthy dog looks like, but there's something like social and I don't know how yeah. it's been bred into them and how genetics work and all that. But I like Gusness being about bringing you joy, Todd. That's yeah. really powerful. It's fun. <laughs> I wonder if you could dig in a little bit about the scientific method. So this idea of just like trying to come up with explanations for why um, the world around us works the way it does, building from from the evidence that we that we find um at hand, the data, as it were, and the data are uh, usually empirical, material, physical, you know, observations um, in in science. And so, part of the Christian's approach to science is understanding um, the way the world works and the kind of repeatable, observable patterns and laws, especially in physics. That's huge. So much of the Christian understanding of God um, presumes that kind of orderly God of nature, and it's all there in the Bible, it's in the hymns. But then there's this like God that like interacts with the world and supernaturally like causes like 
men to come out of their graves, you know, or the right. sun to stop. And how does that like corrupt or disrupt science, like the supernatural causation in the world, like fly in the face of being of science or of being a scientist? Um, I mean, I think it does for some scientists, probably, um, that, you know, I think there's many scientists and many philosophers even, right, that want things to be a certain way. You know, I think, correct me if I'm wrong as the theologian, but I think like somebody like Thomas Jefferson, like went through and like made his own Bible, almost removing all the miracles because he mm-hmm. didn't like those things that violated the way things ought to or are supposed to act. Right. Yep. And so like science is about, yeah, observing and describing the way things typically happen or occur or act, right? The repeatability um, piece. And like, but again, for me, I don't have a problem with miraculous things occurring. If I believe that God is the creator of all of this, he then has the freedom to violate those laws that he made because it's his creation, Mm -hmm. you know, in a similar way that like a painter can make a beautiful drawing and then decide like if they want to just add a little smudge right here, they can. The painting can't do that. It's not within its own ability. And maybe my paint artistry analogies are hitting their limits. But, you know, (laughs) he as the creator outside of that can do Mm. a violation to what's possible within the in the picture itself. And so that's to me what a miracle is just when God chooses to violate the laws of nature that he created. Mm -hmm. And that does account. I mean, you often hear this like dark ages to enlightenment, you know, sort of birth of modernity story as being like, and we turn to science yeah. in 15, you know, 90 with Francis Bacon, you know, and all was made better, you know, man was liberated from the shackles of the authority of the church. And the idea is simply um, that the scientific method, this kind of return to kind of a ruthless, just like, let's just see what's there and say what we know about the world on the base of what we can test. Um is is sounds it sounds kind of um it sounds sort of liberating in a in a certain way and it's easy to forget a lot of those early scientists themselves were believers they didn't see the incompatibility in fact it's like you know bacon uh newton and and so on it was exactly the kind of christian approach to science you're describing one of the i think like unintended consequences of that that sense of like, yes, we still believe and we know there's a God because of this orderly design of nature is there's like almost a new theology that's birthed called deism. And I think Thomas Jefferson and a lot of the founders in the 1700s would have been um, very swayed by this view is like, we still hold on to that notion of God as, as creator and maybe even providential sort of like ongoing controller of nature. But all that supernatural stuff um, and all that like direct activity with a people over time in Israel or in Jesus, like we just don't know about that stuff. But that seems like you lose a lot of the Christian faith if you let go of that almost like personal side of God. Um, So I I don't know. Do you how as a scientist, um, how do you hold together that kind of more? big picture abstract God of the cosmos with this, this personal, um, God of the Christian faith? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. I mean, I think for me, the science and the cosmos and everything, it points to, yeah, a creator, a God. Right. Um, and then I think in terms of the personal God and the God of, of the Bible being the true accurate representation of that God, that to me comes through really other things. And, you know, I think that there's aspects of that written into science, like I talked about with like wave particle duality, I think being very um, significant in its image, that similarity with who Jesus was and different things. Like, I think there's aspects of that written into nature, but by and large, like 
our God is a, a personal God, a relational God. And so knowing him and understanding him comes through that personal relationship. You know, as you talk about like these different scientists throughout time who have become increasingly outspoken about, you know, an atheistic worldview or agnostic worldview or whatever the case may be. Like, I think that those are people that even in a different time or as non-scientists would still have a hard time choosing God, choosing other over themselves. Like to me, so much of our faith is about choosing relationship with God over choosing what I want for me to do on my own all the time. So, mm. you know, I think that there's this choice of choosing the creator who wants a relationship with us and putting others above ourselves and all of these things. And people don't like that sometimes. I think that there's a hardening of our heart that we see. And like, I think science becomes like a cop out mm. and an excuse, but I think there's a condition of the heart that's the real challenge behind mm. it. No, I, I mean, I, I guess Paul seems to be pointing that in Romans one, that it's like, yeah, no man is without an excuse. Yeah. You're not, you without it. There's enough evidence just by the existence of the world, um, to give you a sense of there being a creator, but there's something in you that doesn't want to worship that creator. Right. There's like this inner rebellion. And there's and, still a mystery, right? I mean, we see and read about that in Ephesians right. and other places, yep. right? There's still this divine mystery that's being revealed, but that, you know, we still only see as through a glass darkly or mirror, you know, whatever the exact verbiage is, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, that we, there's so much more depth to the creator of all of this that we still don't fully understand. And like, to me, one way to understand a tiny fraction of that is through science, mm. but there also needs to be that humility that there's pieces that we don't know. And that science, because it's just about the repeatable, observable things that are occurring in nature is only equipped to answer certain questions and certain types of questions. And there's a lot of questions it can answer, but when science becomes almost a worldview and scientism, it becomes like almost a religion for people or a way of living their life. Like it's giving science more kind of teeth than it really has. Mm. Science is amazing and it can do a ton for us. And mm -hmm. the application of it through engineering and medicine and other things is, is great and bountiful, but there's certain questions it's not equipped to handle and deal with. And that's okay. Right. And part of the effectiveness of scientific application and technology, the technologies we love, like going to the doctor, looking at your smartphone, seems to have given it this kind of ascendancy right. in the popular imagination of a cultural authority, even in a period where the other cultural authorities of the church or ancestors or whatever have been like, yeah, don't trust the past. Don't trust the religious folks. Right. You know, we can trust these people who have on white coats or well, like to me, it seems like there's been like an increasing, I don't know, like almost like a challenge to truth that isn't scientific. Mm. You know, there's sort of this like postmodernist, you know, relativism is kind of popular. Like, okay, what's your truth is your truth. And my truth is my truth. Science is the only like facts that we can mm. agree on because they're testable. And then anything, else mm. about good and evil or about ethics or morality is really just a condition of our upbringing and mm -hmm. based on our frame of reference to use a physics -y term or whatever, yeah. you know, like yeah. that has really, I think, become a stumbling block for so many people because they think like, okay, you know, science is the only truth that there is. And, you know, anything else about God is just sort of my own speculation. Right. And it's a challenge for, I think, a lot of people. I mean, that, more broadly. exactly. I mean, that's a perfect crystallization of what it feels like to be modern. I feel like right. is like the objective capital T truth stuff is just science, heart, math, just things that are material um, and very quantifiable. And then all the other stuff, 
values, religion, all that. It's just, that's subjective. It's the inward stuff. It's how you feel about things and it's you do you and, you know, and I'm not going to voice my opinion. The, the favorite phrase of that inward turn to be modern is you preface everything or no, you, after you say something, you do comma for me, for me. That's, I I noticed that. And as I started teaching, it was like, that was always, uh, those were always the last two words of every statement in an ethics class or a theology class. And it's like, on the one hand, it's like, admirable humility and modesty about your claims, but also like evidence of this deep besetting, uh, almost disease that we really don't think there is anything other than just a perspective and a subjective take on these things that are really the things that hold us together as a people and shape our, our cultural civilization. That's part of the fragmentation that we're in right now. Um, I guess, so maybe to, to flip it back on scientists who are, maybe they're the materialist atheist scientists out there. There's some famous ones, you know, now in the new atheism, as it's called with Richard Dawkins yeah. and Daniel Dennett and others like Sam Harris. And I guess you would maybe, maybe flip it back on that crowd and say, so here's the really mysterious parts of science. Like here's where, here's an example or two where science bumps into like a really big mystery for which you is like, and here's God, like this is directly pointing me, but what's their explanation of those things? Or, or is there no explanation? Where are the, like the mystery boundaries of like science as you see it? Yeah. I mean, so there's various, you know, I mean, I think there's still some mystery around like the origin of life, you know, I think they do a great job through evolution and other things of being able to explain once you have the first life, how Mm -hmm. we got to it. Um, There have been some experiments, you know, that make them think like, yeah, possibly with just these perfect conditions, it might be able to spark a way to develop life. Um, but like, to me, like the big bang is, is a huge one, something that I know a lot of Christians are, are afraid of. And I still remember when I was for my very first teaching job, mm. I was applying for, it was for an astronomy physics teaching position. And they asked us, it's kind of a mean, uh, teaching prompt. They gave us 10 minutes to teach and we had to teach the big bang theory in 10 minutes. Um, it's like the big bang theory in the history of the beginning of time or something like crazy. I was actually hoping so, you're going to do that right yeah, now. Yeah. yeah here's 10 minutes. Yeah. about. Uh, uh, and so like, but I remember like, I was super nervous about it. It's like, as a Christian, am I going to like say things I don't believe? Like, am I mm. being fro- forced inside a secular school and like mm. all this stuff? And then I started diving into it and I was like, it was amazing. You know, if you look, it's one piece of scientific evidence that says, here's a finite time in the past that the universe began. Hmm. It sprang into existence out of nothing. Hmm. And like that to me is exact, like <laughs> points to a creator. And that's where like you have to get back far enough. And if you talk with, you know, scientists from an atheistic worldview, like they are struggling with the same thing. Like, where did that universe come from? We say it came from God. And then their response is, well, then where did God come from? And we're like, you know, he wasn't created. He's eternal, you know. Mm. But then we ask them, where did the universe come from? And like a lot of times our response is, well, for me, it's easier to accept. It's a less complicated solution that it just came out of nothing than it came from this intelligent, creative, personal God, you know. And that's where you'll see and hear sometimes that be a response. And then I think going kind of the other way, as you zoom forward into like quantum mechanics is really fascinating, challenging. I'm I'm no expert on it, you know, but as we start to see this fact that there's like this quantum uncertainty Mm. um, and that like observation seems to affect like the results of our experiments, it's like shaking the foundations of what we understand science to be of how things act at a very small Mm. scale and like 
you know, as we get into things like trying to understand and postulate about string theory, about multiverses, you know, these are all very complicated ideas that are very uncertain and they beg so many questions like how is it and why is it that my interaction with an experiment affects the results how does our observation collapse probability functions and as good scientists like we can describe it right we've created Mm. models that you know there's this probability function and the electron is moving in a probability wave it's not in any one spot at one time the experiments confirm that and then once i make an observation i collapse its probability function and it chooses one point Mm. Okay, cool. But like that, like, how is that even possible? How does observation, what does it mean to make an observation? There's plenty of debate among scientists about that. But like, why does an observation change the results? How is it that the world exists as probability functions at the small scale? It raises a ton of questions. That idea is what sparks some of the theories about the multiverse. Like, well, maybe when you collapse probability function, there's just a different universe when it comes into the other option or the other options. And so that's why I'm just creating a new branch off of the possibilities. Hmm. Or there's a creative God that actually gave us free will, and that free will is written into the laws of nature. I mean, for me, hmm. that aspect of science, which, again, without more background, I hope I'm not being confusing to you and the listeners, but like <laughs> that truth that there is probability functions that observation affects results to me points to again a god who created a world with free will as part of it and this is just it manifesting itself physically but again for an atheistic world view person they i'm sure have another explanation and scoff at what i'm saying right now um but it does ask and beg a lot of bigger questions than science currently is able to explain Hmm. um that doesn't mean it won't change we as scientists are good at constantly answering questions we thought unanswerable with increased technology but right now it's a pretty confusing one wow it's amazing and it invites this idea that the seen and the unseen are actually more closely related and science can actually um, bring us closer to the mystery of existence and our interaction with the world and I want to turn to the task of teaching and forming college students, which you and I both love doing and share, and how this interacts with that work is really interesting to me. So one of the things I find most uh, beautiful but also challenging is the struggle students bring to me with the subject matter, how the Christian faith and the subject matter in my class, whether it's ethics or whatever, um, is interacting or feels incompatible or troubling to them. So is there an example or two of a student that's brought a question related to science and faith, either directly related to your course content or more broadly uh, to you? And what's that been? Yeah, so that's a good question. I mean, um, so I have a, with students, I kind of task them with like doing a faith in science project where they have to choose some piece of science, research it a little bit, explain it to their peers, and then talk about how it can intersect with faith, either in a positive way or in a contradictory way. And um, inevitably, some students will choose evolution as a topic. And it, it tends to be one that's very, very challenging for, for many students. And I remember in, in a group setting, after somebody had done one of these presentations, a student was just like, Todd, like, how do we even in start to investigate this topic you know it's such a hot topic like is the earth old or is it young did god use evolution did he not use evolution mm-hmm. is evolution from the devil you know like there's all these different opinions and the student was just like i don't even want you to tell me the answer i just want to know like how am i supposed to go about 
investigating it and thinking about it and talking about it, you know, um, which was a great question. And I can't recall my exact answer. It probably wasn't great, you know. Um, but I think that's the perfect thing to be asking is like, how do we start to engage with this? You know, um, how do we read the Bible? How do we understand what the Bible is and isn't saying at different times? You know, I think if you look like historically, one of the big popular things to point to in terms of conflict with the church and, and science is like the whole transition from like the geocentric model to the heliocentric model of the, of the solar system and in, in universe, you know? Um, and there was conflict. Much of it was really more kind of personal challenges between the Pope and Galileo and how he published his things and mm. the Pope taking it personal, even though it wasn't meant to be. And, you know, all kinds of people stuff because people are sinful. Um, but like that whole challenge, like much of what caused the church at the time to really be resistant to the idea of a heliocentric model, a sun-centered model of the of the solar system was like just two Bible verses in Joshua, where it talks about the sun standing still during mm-hmm. a battle. Mm-hmm. And then in Psalms, where it talks about the earth being placed on its foundation and it will not move. And so those two convinced many people that like the earth was indeed non-moving stationary in the universe. Um, and now I think most Christians would agree that the earth is, is not stationary. It is moving and that those were used as kind of metaphors or different things or that, you know, like the sun could have physically stood still and maybe in a miraculous way, God caused the earth's rotation to, to slow or stop in a way um, that wasn't detrimental. Because if he just like stopped the earth, that would not be good. Um, but, you know, did something miraculous um, to, to cause that to happen. But like, again, it, what that whole challenge came down to is interpreting two very narrow scriptures and understanding mm-hmm. what was meant by them, not losing the truth in what they're saying, but understanding how they're written. And that that's what I find is so many of the challenges that students have come down to, especially right now, reading and understanding Genesis 1 and reading and understanding science and what it says and doesn't say, hmm. um, I think. And so just helping the students understand that that's, that's where the challenge lies and um, trying to unpack that a little bit and understanding like anytime you do science in the past is really tricky as well. And so there is some, some level of uncertainty. There's aspects of things with dating and so on that I think are pretty well refined, um, but they're still based on certain assumptions that make it a challenge as well. And so to me, the biggest, I don't know, like humility, like you said early on, is just so crucial. It's crucial for the Christians to be humble. Like maybe we don't know everything we think we know exactly about the Bible. There's details that we might misunderstand or misinterpret. Um, And it's important for scientists as well, because we continually find that we're wrong about different things. We're Mm. oftentimes right, but there's a lot of things we aren't correct about as well. And so a little more humility, I think, would go a long way in easing that tension. Mm. Yeah. One issue that students have routinely brought to me about science and faith for which I have very little to help them with, I know it's technically like a biology, evolutionary biology question, but it is this idea of the problem of evil and the existence of suffering, like really harsh suffering in the world and the idea of like a really good God, good and loving, kind God who's very involved in creation, not just in the way it was designed, but in directing it. And there's parts of nature, there's like... Um, there's like Amy's pumpkins, just like direct, you know, divine signposts. But then there's like really harsh, um, apparently painful and suffering manifestations around bacteria or disease or microbes. Like I just read something totally crazy that I'll butcher. I forgot all the details, but it was like this microbe that gets into an ant 
and it kind of messes the ants like uh, sort of like sense capacities where it starts climbing this blade of grass over and over. And the microbe is basically trying to get the ant to be eaten by a cow or a grazing animal because then the microbe gets in and really screws up this like bigger mammal animal or whatever. And it's just kind of like, wow, wow. that's like intricate and beautiful and complex, but sad because it ends in this like suffering, dying, big, bigger animal. So where's God in that? Right. Yeah. So there, I mean, how do you, how, I know that's not directly your jam, but like, how do you wrestle with those kind of questions? Yeah. I ask a good theologian. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's hard. Like they're, they're, it's challenging the problem of pain, the problem of suffering in our world, um, whether looking at science or not looking at science is, is a real challenge. Um, and what I think maybe, you know, is like God gave us free will. So we have the freedom to choose him, to choose relationship, to choose love. And in his infinite wisdom, that freedom is better than the alternative hmm. and it's worth it even though it can, has the potential to give rise to, to suffering. And whether that bacteria is a direct result of sin in the world, I don't know right. for sure exactly how all of that works because it's beyond my understanding. But I, I think that we do have a good God and a loving God, and I think there's great evidence for it. I think the suffering in the world I'm, is, is harsh. It's terrible. It's brutal. It's difficult. And I think we live in like one of the most comfortable times in all of human history. And the suffering was probably much greater for many people in the past, mm. um, or at least very different in more physically, mm -hmm. um, apparent to their day-to-day -day lives. And yet they still had the freedom to love God and love others and, and find fulfillment in that amidst the suffering. And I mean, the scriptures tell us that the suffering has a role as well, you know, that mm. suffering, mm -hmm breeds perseverance and perseverance character and character hope and hope won't disappoint. And right. so, yep. um, not that I think that God intentionally makes us suffer so that we can get those things, but he can even use the suffering in a way to build, build character in us that can lead us closer to him in the end. Because like the, the longer I live, the longer I look at scriptures and try to understand it, the, the more continually I'm convinced that God, our God is a relational God. What he cares about is our relationships, not our boxes that we check, not the things that we do, not mm. our achievements, um, not how cool we are or how good we are at board games or how big our pumpkins are or anything else, right? What he cares about is, is loving him, loving others, right? And taking mm. care of ourselves and his creation and, and by extension, other things as well. And so, Gus, you know, Gus, exactly. Life. So I, I, that's probably a, not a great answer, but that's the best answer I can. No, have. I mean, it, it speaks to this idea that eternally we'll find out that there were really, um, that the really big things, the things that mattered didn't have to do with our ability to mentally like solve all those pickles of the problem right. of evil or the existence of the world, but these more fundamental, um, day-to-day -day choices that we have to move out of ourselves toward God and toward others, uh, or to turn inwardly and in, yeah. in pride and self-absorption. I mean, it's easier for me to say in a happy life in a comfortable time, sure. you know, and then people totally. who are suffering, you know, like I, yeah, I don't know for sure. Well, the big pickle with that too, that we're not going to solve, uh, at the end of our time is, so say you do go with the free will account of the existence of suffering and evil and death. And that's very much been like the main doctrinal view of like post Genesis three, we rebelled, we sinned and the curse and the fall. 
evolution does seem to throw some weird wrinkle into right. that in terms of like, okay, humans are very late in this developmental spectrum, at which point we'd have consciousness and free will, and but the engine of evolutionary development to get there was death, you know, whether or not suffering is part of that, you know, engine of selection right. and death is not. And I, I don't have a really easy way to, to theologically make sense of that at the moment. Yeah, um, neither do I. Okay, uh, good. So, I mean, I, and it's all of these questions are things I'm, I'm constantly exploring. I mean, I I will sometimes grill like my biology friends and others. Like, how do you how do you explain this? You know, how do yep. you explain these different aspects? And we're all trying to figure it out together. You know, in, in different ways. But like something that I find comfort in, and again, maybe it's it's not the best solution or answer, but I find that there's strong evidence throughout the scriptures that God is outside of time. And we are very limited in our thinking because we're so tied to mm. time, mm -hmm. you know, like even thinking about like creation, like God, I think created time for us to experience, right. For creation to experience. But like, what did time even look like? How did it flow before human beings occurred? Right. What does it look like for God to be outside and enter time in different ways at different points on a line? Kind of like, it's, I don't know. I mean, it's, I just think there's so much more that we don't we don't get, you know, yeah. just like our understanding of the quantum world, like broke physics. Like we all of a sudden, like Einstein came along and everything we thought we knew, we realized we're just like coarse approximations and it mm. like completely smashed our worldview. Like I think there's truths about God that are even bigger than that. And that would do the same thing, you know, that we just we don't get it entirely. We want to continue to strive to understand. I think things like the theory of evolution. I'm not an expert in biology, but. Most biologists I know and respect believe that it has very accurate merits scientifically. Mm, right. um, just like I think there's good evidence that the universe has a finite time it began with the Big Bang and so on. Um, but we have to kind of figure out and think through it kind of together. And, you know, did the second law of thermodynamics not start until the fall? It seems probable. Sure. What does that look like before? I'm not sure. Um, and that's a humility for scientists and for human beings to have as knowers. I mean, back, I think a lot of this centers on the disposition of humility and the ability to want to continue learning and recognize yeah. that you might be wrong or you might be fallible. I love the books, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions yeah. by Thomas Kuhn, right? It's like the famous example of like thinking about physics um, uh, changing from Newton to Einstein, right? right. It's not as if... Newton was totally wrong and off base, but you discover something new that totally like outstrips the earlier theory. Right. It builds on it in ways that actually sh show you that not only was it incomplete, but it was wrong in certain ways. Right. But it's like, how can something be kind of like right and wrong at right. the same time? It's like, well, there's a developmental sort of ongoing conversation about the truth of these things, you yeah. know? Yeah. And that's, and it, I mean, I think that's what we should be doing as Christians, like with science, but also like with the scriptures, you know, we constantly read it and different things are re revealed to us. And we need to have that humility that we don't have it all figured out, that we don't know exactly everything, but that God does have a truth in that the more we pursue him and the more we pursue his word and his nature and other things, the, the closer we can get to that, I think. Right. Um, All right. Last question. All right. We've been kind of, kind of haughty, sort of arrogant Christian dudes here at George Fox talking about those atheist materialist scientists yeah, yeah. out there and how they don't know what the pumpkins are really pointing to. But I want to like flip it back on ourselves for a minute um, without getting too political, given the the situation we're in. But what can the church learn from science? Good question. I mean, what can the church learn from science? I think that the kind of pursuit 
through kind of challenge and sort of regular persistence um, can draw us closer to to knowledge and understanding. You know, like science is to do science right, you have to be curious and you have to be humble. That's why those are like our character virtues for mm-hmm. a new course, right? right. Um, and it's in that that you can have the best science result that maybe you're wrong and you need to revise your things and you need to be curious so you're finding out more. And I think the church has to do the same. I think we have to be humble knowing that our God is right and awesome and pure, but like we live in a fallen world. We see through a glass darkly and there's truths and mysteries that we're still constantly unveiling, but we have to be curious about him as the creator Mm. and striving to know and understand him more. And I think with those two things, we can just do so much better in Mm. different ways. You know, I think that there's, I don't know. I find that the, I think for me personally and for many people in the church, like the sneakiest sin that gets in our way is pride Mm. and it's easy to make excuses for it or to disguise it or to hide it or even like be proud about being how humble you know and different like there's all kinds of (laughs) sneaky things about about pride and i just think we need to be more careful and call ourselves out on it you know and i think like that's what happened with the whole schism Mm -hmm. you know about the change from the geocentric to heliocentric there's so much pride involved Mm. that made it look much worse than it really was Okay, quick, quick follow-up. I know we're coming yeah, to the end, yeah. but do you think the church is afraid of science? Maybe our little like corner of churchiness here, evangelicalism. Um, yeah, I do. Uh, at least I think uh, many students and Christians are very outspokenly nervous about it. I know I was, um, and I think our culture encourages that, you know, fear. I mean, I, I was asked by a physics professor one time, like, how can you be a Christian and study physics? Not being mean or anything, but like that's just mm. so prevalent in our mm-hmm. culture. And, and my students have the same thing. And um, I think like to anybody who feels worried and fearful about science, I'd say one, like that's okay. Like my students are afraid of science, even if it doesn't have to do with faith at all, because science is crazy. But but also like we need to be trusting in our God. Like he is so much bigger than us and than science and than anything else. And like, if we're worried that like a scientific discovery is able to disprove our God and our faith somehow, like there's something wrong with our God and our faith because he is real. He is alive. He is true. And nothing's going to disprove him. It might mess with our understanding of exactly how he works or what his word says, but like he is so alive and so real and so caring for us that you shouldn't be afraid. Hmm. It's awesome. Be unafraid. Study science. It will ultimately direct your mind and your heart to God, even if for a while it's sort of a bumpy road. road. It's a good exhortation. Todd, thank you so much for your time. It's great to chat. Yeah, thank you. It was fun. All right. Thanks for having me. This has been a production of George Fox Digital. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the George Fox Talks podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you stream things on your phone or computer. Check us out on the web at georgefox.edu slash talks, where we have videos, publications, and more. And we're also on YouTube at youtube.com slash georgefoxtalks, 